I'm your host, Arielle. And I'm your host, Alyssa. Welcome to Ghost Tea Podcast. A podcast for those who seek magic. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Ghost Tea Podcast. I'm your host, Ariel Willow, and it is going to be a solo episode today with just me. Alyssa had some scheduling conflicts that came up last minute that just made it really hard for us to find a time to record together. So it is just me hosting today, but hopefully they will be able to join me when we're going into November and December and onwards. And as always, before we get into it, I just want to mention that these are my own personal opinions, and I just want to share what I found with my personal path with others. So just be aware of that as we get into this. I'm definitely not saying that this is the only way that things work or the only kind of experiences people will have. So I just want to make that clear. And if you haven't checked out the Ghost Team merch, I highly recommend you do. Alyssa and I both have matching hoodies that we are definitely enjoying for this cooler weather that we've been having. So if you need some cooler weather gear that you can sport around that has ghosty on it because he's adorable. Let's be honest. Go ahead and check out the link in the description below, or you can go to ghostteapodcast.com and click merch up at the top of the screen. All right. So with that said, let's go ahead and get into it. Alyssa and I did have a topic that we were going to talk about this month. I am going to reserve that topic for when we're together again, just because I really would like to have them with me on that episode. But we do have a buttload of questions that you all have sent to us over the years. And also just recently, um, when I posted on my Instagram stories and TikTok stories of, you know, doing the episode alone today and anything that you might want me to talk about or discuss. So we're going to go over those today. One of the questions that someone had that they sent in actually a couple years ago that we just haven't gotten around to answering was, do higher energetic beings choose to endure forms of suffering in order to learn lessons like human souls? do. And that was, I believe, from Giovanna. Um, And then they also have another question that we will get to as well. When it comes to angels and star beings and infernals and, you know, gods and goddesses and deities and things like that, uh, what people would commonly refer to as quote unquote higher energetic beings or, you know, beings that are on a different level than we are when it comes to consciousness, I would I would think uh, is the best way to describe that. I don't really know um, for sure whether or not that would be something that they would feel as though they had to endure. Um, Actually, you know what? I'll just ask Frega because she's here. (laughs) Um, Frega, when they're, well, in your experience, I suppose, as as a goddess, do you feel like you have to experience forms of suffering in order to learn lessons the same way that humans do? Okay, so she did say no, that most of the time, the experiences that are portrayed in mythology and things like that. So let's take into account, um, you know, Lucifer's story or uh, the the gods within Norse mythology, um, you know, Loki and Odin and things like that. Um, or when we look at the stories within Greek mythology, Zeus and Era and things of that nature, when we're taking that into account, she said that there's, there has to be an understanding that a lot of it is allegorical in the sense that 
what they experienced isn't always necessarily by the book as far as it's told. It's more of a way for them to get a message across almost in a more metaphoric way, if that makes sense. So rather than saying, you know, you need to do the dishes to a kid that needs to do the dishes, you tell them a story about how, you know, a kid didn't do the dishes and then he learned a lesson from it, right? Or he didn't follow through with something and then he learned a lesson from it to kind of build this understanding in that person's head of understanding that you need to follow through with things and not necessarily being super straightforward, like you need to do this. Um, Are any of the stories that are within mythology more literal rather than allegorical? She said some, but not all. Okay, so another question that I had was one of the theories that I have is that, which obviously this could be me, you know, just creating this total UPG. So this is, I do want to make this clear. Like this is just me having conversations with Frega. So like, keep in mind that this is UPG, which is unverified personal gnosis. Um, So the other question that I had was, are any of the stories true in the sense that the experiences took place in a different realm or a different reality than earth reality? Okay. So she said, yes, that uh, there are stories within mythology that are how they were portrayed in mythology, but they were in it within a different realm. It wasn't necessarily the realm of earth. So it's different in that sense. Um, okay. I'm not going to have Frega answer all of these questions, but I felt like it just made more sense to just have it come straight for the, from the source when it came to a question like that. So let's get into the next one from Giovanna, which was how to let go of rage you used in the past for survival. I am going to preface this with, I am not a therapist. I'm not a licensed counselor. I'm not a medical professional. Um, I do think that therapy is a great way to explore ways of processing trauma or processing um, situations like this in order to move forward the best way that we can. Uh, Now, therapy isn't going to be a great fit for everybody, but it is something that I would recommend exploring if you are experiencing a lot of pent-up rage or anger that you feel like you're not able to release on your own. Um, But I will speak from personal experience from dealing with a lot of anger that I held on to for a very long time. And, you know, I still have it. I still have some lingering remnants of um, what was very deep seated and, and very, you know, big (laughs) anger um, over past experiences. But I've learned over the years, small ways of releasing that for me. One of the best ways I have found to release emotions recently actually is exercise. And I know that a lot of people are going to hate that because they're like, Ariel, please don't, please don't tell us to get on a treadmill. And I'm definitely not saying that because, you know, exercise is something that some people really love and really find a lot of benefit from. And some people don't even really have the ability to utilize. So I'm definitely not saying that it's the only way that you can release anger, but at least for me personally, moving my body has been a way for me to process a lot of anger, um, both 
deep-seated anger and more recent anger uh, experiences. And honestly, it wasn't something that I intended to have do that. The first couple times that I went to exercise with my current partner, um, I had to actually take a break from exercising because I was getting so angry. I was having all this anger come up while we were walking on the treadmill for cardio afterwards. And it was like, whenever my heart rate would start going up, it was like almost this dam opening for the anger to come up and be released, which was great, but highly inconvenient to do in the middle of a gym. (laughs) So I do think that there are things like that where moving your body can sometimes give you that release. And um, there is a book called like the body's keep score, which it's highly debated within like therapy um, circles, because some therapists really recommend it and find it really helpful. And some people say that it's changed their lives and other people find that book highly problematic. So um, I haven't read it myself, I can't give my personal experience or personal I you know, thoughts on it. But I can say from personal experience that I do believe that to be true in the sense that I really do feel that our body can hold on to stress and hold on to anger and hold on to grief in places that sometimes we don't access until we're moving our body in a certain way. So um, I know that, you know, those of you who are TikTok users, you've probably seen some videos come up on your For You page or, you know, while searching or something where it's people talking about like release points in the body for trauma or, you know, pent up stuff. And one of the areas for that is in the hips, um, like in the inner hips and I remember being like, oh, this is great. I'm going to try this and doing some stretches that specifically targeted those areas and kind of moving it. And then another area was like right by the shoulder, I think. And um, I remember doing some exercises where I was, you know, stretching and just kind of activating those points and nothing coming up as I was doing it. But it was like the next day, I think that I had all of this stuff come up and I was like, oh my gosh, like it's just coming up from seemingly nowhere. And then I, you know, put two and two together and was like, oh, okay. And I do find that when I'm doing leg day at the gym, that that also really has been activating a lot of anger and or sadness for me. Um, one of the most recent like days that I did, I did alone, thank the gods, because I did leg day, came back into the apartment and just fell to my knees and sobbed for about 10 to 15 minutes. And so I do think that physical movement, even if it's small and seemingly silly, can really be an amazing way to release things that we have pent up in our bodies. So um, I know, like I said, that that isn't going to be accessible for everybody. And there are other ways of doing that. Like some people find journaling to be really helpful. Um, Some people find talk therapy to be really helpful. You know, there's also like rec rooms where you can go in and wear protective gear and, you know, smash a bunch of shit. (laughs) There's, There's a bunch of stuff like that that you can utilize if you find that exercising isn't 
your thing or isn't something that you have access to due to, you know, disability or injury or um, physical limitations. So there are options for people who don't have access to that. But I do find for me personally, that has been really, really helpful for releasing that kind of stuff. Um, but also in releasing that, you also have to have tools at your disposal or have ways that you process it because releasing it and letting go of it is one thing, but now you're holding it, right? Because when you're wearing something, right? Like, let's see this past anger or this past frustration or sadness or grief as a coat that we're wearing, right? And eventually you're like, okay, I'm ready to let this go. I'm ready to take this off. You have to know how to carry it in a way where you're able to process it. So if you take it off, it needs to go somewhere. And so um, when I think of anger coming up, I don't think of it coming up and me tossing it away from myself, but more so almost having it come up as like one of those puzzle boxes. (laughs) Like when it comes up, it's almost like I'm being handed a puzzle box and I'm able to sit with it and kind of play with it like a Rubik's cube to try to solve how to open it. And that's how I approach anger and sadness now instead of having it something where It feels like it's something that's given to me that's heavy and awkward and I don't know what to do with it. I explore it. And sometimes that can be really helpful in processing it as well. Another question that was sent in was, when we pass, will we be able to meet famous people on the other side, how they were in our lifetime? Obviously, they're going to reincarnate, but can I meet like Princess Diana as she was when I was alive? And will I still have the desire to meet these certain people? So in my understanding of the other side and from the spirits that I've talked to and things of that nature, I don't feel that we would really care uh, as much about meeting those people or having those experiences with those people as we do as humans. Because when we're on the other side, we are able to see a lot more information than we have here. I can't say that we know everything because I actually don't know that we know everything when we go over to the other side. But I do know that we know a lot more than we do when we're here in our human existence. And so I do think that there is a level of how much we would really be concerned with that or really be interested in really uh, knowing about that kind of stuff. I think for spirits, it's not as important for them to really understand what happened to that person that wasn't them or experience that person. Um, not to say that it, they wouldn't be interested in, at all, but just that it might not be as much of a priority as it is for us as humans or be as interesting. Like it might just be like, oh, you know, can we go to the grocery store? Of course we can. Do we want to? Not necessarily, you know, <laughs> that's, that's what it makes me think of. And another question that someone had, which is kind of along those same lines from the same person, Jess, uh, was, would we have all of the answers? Like, would we know who shot JFK? Would we just have all of the information that we do? Or would we have access to it somehow? I do think that we would have access to it somehow. But again, I just, I don't know for sure that as spirits, 
that we would have a lot of interest in understanding or getting that information because as spirits, we're just, we kind of understand why we're there, what happened, things of that nature. And it just doesn't really, it's not probably not going to be as interesting as it is for us in the human realm as it would be for us in the spirit realm. Okay, so getting to some of the newer questions, one of the questions that someone sent in on my Instagram stories was about haunted dolls. So haunted dolls is a concept that dolls hold the spirits of people who have passed or can be haunted, um, similar to places or things like that, which I, I will be honest, I'm not closed off completely to the idea that haunted dolls can be a thing. Um, I have had people send me dolls that they believe were haunted and things of that nature. And, you know, of course, a lot of us know about the haunted doll Annabelle and Robert and things like that. And it, when I was researching this a little bit, it looks like haunted dolls was a concept that really started becoming popular around the early 1900s and just kind of took off from there and just continued onwards. So I, I do think that there is some legitimacy to it in the sense that I do think that spirits can become very fond of certain things and not necessarily attach themselves, but maybe stay present around certain items or certain objects. Do I feel that they necessarily inhabit those objects? I don't know for sure. Um, I have heard in the past um, which I granted, I actually don't know how accurate this information is. So I do want to mention that, but I have heard in the past that dolls were originally created as, um, you know, things that the human soul could embody after they passed. So I believe it might be within certain cultures that, dolls were created as a way for like a, a home for that spirit, essentially. And um, I know within at least Cornish, uh, you know, folklore and um, practices, there are things considered like spirit houses, which you would have in your home where a spirit would reside so that instead of causing havoc in your home, they could cause havoc in their little house. And but typically those ne weren't necessarily um dolls or objects like dolls. Usually it was just like a small house object or a box or something like that. And it wasn't that the soul was trapped in them, um, but more so just used as a way to give the, the spirit somewhere to inhabit, to not create so much problems in your own home, which I do want to give reference of where I learned about the spirit houses, just so that everybody is aware in case you want to look it up yourself. It was from the book called Traditional Witchcraft, a Cornish Book of Ways by Gemma Gary. So if you're interested in that, I found that book quite interesting. There was a lot of really interesting information about um, Cornish witchcraft there. And so if you're interested in learning more about spirit houses in particular, um, there's a tiny section in that book about them. But as far as my own personal feelings on haunted dolls, I, I honestly feel like I can't say whether or not I believe that it is a thing or not. I would be really interested in experiencing the energy or um, experiencing a doll that is more notably haunted, uh, you know, such as Annabelle or Robert or things like that. But 
I just, I feel like I haven't had enough experiences on a personal level to say whether or not I'm, you know, pro like that being a thing or not a believer in it. There was someone who asked about the astral realm, but they didn't specify what they wanted to know. Um, but for those who are curious to know what the astral realm is, basically the astral realm is just the the space kind of in between the spirit realm and our realm. Um, the astral realm is essentially the place where your spirit self explores. So when people say they astral travel or things of that nature, it's usually them talking about them utilizing an ability to like separate their consciousness from their physical body and be able to travel with it to other spaces. So when I am meditating and Alyssa have, and I talked about this in, in an episode, I can't honestly remember which episode it was, forgive me, but we did talk about how when you're meditating, you can have very, uh, you know, present experiences in the sense that it helps to ground you in the present moment. But astral travel is almost more visceral. It's, it's more visceral in the sense that when you're astral traveling somewhere, you're probably going to be experiencing the smells in that area, the way that the ground feels or what you're wearing feels, things like that. So for example, uh, when I astral travel to places like the infernal realm or, um, Asgard and things like that. It's, it's more visceral. I can smell grass. I can smell, you know, the scent of the air. I can feel the, the texture of the clothes that I'm wearing. I can feel when someone touches me there, like things like that. It's very visceral. Uh, whereas when I'm meditating, it's more almost like observing rather than experiencing. So um, I don't know what question that person had specifically to the astral realm, but um, I, I hope that hopefully answers a little, a little bit. Someone did ask about uh, angelic magic or angel magic. And what I do want to mention is that there's I did work with angels for a very long time when I first started my practice. When I first started in my spiritual practice outside of Christianity, one of the first things that I did was start worshiping the goddess Nyx, which I don't really talk about because it was very, it was a pretty short amount of time. I would say like maybe around six months to almost a year. Um, and it was fairly casual. I didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, and it was more so just because I felt like I needed to be worshiping someone in my practice because a lot of people that I would you know, be researching and stuff like that, worshipped someone. So I was like, oh, okay, well, I'll just choose a, a goddess or a god that I worship because I was looking a lot more at like Wiccan approaches to things. And oftentimes within Wicca, um, there is a certain deity that you choose or that chooses you and then you worship them or work with them and things like that. Um, I'm not going to speak too deeply on Wiccan beliefs just because I don't practice Wicca. I've never practiced Wicca. Um, I don't know enough about it to know for sure how that works. But from an observation from the outside, that's what it seemed like. So when I first started my practice, I was like, oh, I'm going to worship the goddess Nyx because that's, you know, she's coming through for me. Like she showed up for me first and then I started um, worshiping her. I, I don't really want to say that I worked with her because even though it did feel like I worked with her, like I did a couple shadow work sessions with her. Um, 
so I suppose if I did say I worked with her, it would only have been for a couple months, but, um, it, it wasn't necessarily how I work with deities now. So it's sometimes hard for me to feel like it was almost like a legitimate thing. <laughs> if that makes sense. Uh, but I did definitely worship her for a small amount of time. And during that time, I also started working with uh, archangels. So obviously a lot of, you know, I, I've had Archangel Azrael around me since honestly, for as long as I can remember. And he's always been present in my life. He's always been around, but I, I don't know that I can ever say that I've really worked with him. Like he's always more so just present and not necessarily an entity that I actively work with outside of my mediumship work and death work and things of that nature. So, um, when I say working with angels, I mean, actively working with Archangel Gabriel and Archangel Michael and things like that to work through like shadow work, work through, uh, the initial and still very fresh religious trauma I had at that time. So I worked with Archangel Gabriel for about eight years, um, consistently, like he was pretty much always around. I did work with my guide, my star guide, Nikado during that time as well, uh, pretty heavily and worked with other star beings at that time. But, um, angels and star beings were like the things that I worked with during that eight year period of time. And I, I didn't practice Enochian magic, um, which Enochian magic is, it was developed by John D and Edward Kelly. Um, I don't know enough about it to really know how to describe it, but basically it is a, uh, it's a practice that is specifically around working with angelic beings and entities based on information or, um, insights that they got from the book of Enoch, which is something that I, I believe I've mentioned in pa past, um, episodes as well. And the book of Enoch is essentially like this, um, it's supposedly a, a series of books within the Bible or, uh, a book within the Bible that was taken out before it was officially published the way that you experience the Christian Bible, the way that it is today. And so it's, it's based upon that, but Enochian magic is specifically people who more so work with angels and things like that. Now, do you have to practice Enochian magic to work with angels? I don't personally believe that you do. I think you can work with angels or my personal belief is that you can work with angels the same way that you work with any other deity or entity or things like that. Um, the way that angels, at least in my experience, have approached working with me is very different than the way that other deities approach me when they work with me, though. Uh, as in, they're not really ones to ask for offerings or anything like that. They'll come in when you call and they'll be there to assist you, but they, they don't they've never really asked for offerings. And when I try to give them offerings, they're just like, this is weird. Um, so I don't know if that's other people's experiences, but as far as angel magic goes, I think it can be something that can be approached from so many different, um, ways and facets that it's hard for me to give specific, um, guidance in, in terms of how to approach them outside of what 
the ways that I've approached them in the past, which is honestly just very similar to the way that I approach other deities. So if you're wanting to know the way that I approach deity work in general, I would go back to episode um, 25 and 35, or I believe it was either, it's either, no, it's episode 24 and, and 34 in Ghost Tea Podcast, which is our deity work episodes. And those episodes we do talk uh, and, and mention about talking um, and working with angels and things of that nature and how to navigate that in that way, in the way that we know to approach it. But Enochian magic is also something that can be explored. I can't honestly say whether or not I know that it is a closed practice or not. I, If it is, I'm unaware of it. So I just want to make that clear. Um, definitely do your research. It's not something that I have enough information about to know whether or not that would be something that's closed. So I do encourage you to heavily do your research before jumping right into practicing Anakian magic. Um, because you know, cultural appropriation is unfortunately a thing. And I, I wish I had more information to clearly state whether or not that was a closed practice or not. Um, due to the fact that I don't know, I would say don't practice it until you know more information about it. And the more information you find out about it, probably is going to be more than I know, which is honestly just from Wikipedia. So <laughs> one of the questions that I got on TikTok was from Brooke and it was about astrological misconceptions and transits that aren't as scary as they may seem, um, or when to pay attention to transits. So one of the biggest misconceptions I feel like happens with astrology is that astrology is more so something that causes things to happen rather than is just mirroring what is happening. So astrology at the core of it is honestly really just a study and a log of patterns that have happened through history. Within the book Hellenistic Astrology by Chris Brennan, he talks about the history of traditional astrology and kind of how it came to be and was formed. And one of the things that he talked about was how astrology didn't start off as a practice of, oh, this person uh, tends to have this kind of personality trait if they have this placement in this house. It actually started off as um, mundane astrology, which is the practice of looking at transits and how they affect us on a collective level or a political level or uh, event level. So, you know, for example, when Saturn moved into Pisces, before Saturn moved into Pisces, at the beginning of this year, 2023, there was a lot of astrologers who were like, there's probably going to be a lot more experiences where we have ocean stuff happening or like water disasters because Saturn is a planet that is a, considered a malefic planet, which causes issues and it can cut things away. It can cause delays. It can cause restrictions. It can cause discipline, uh, the need for more responsibility to be taken, things of that nature. And when we have it in a water sign like Pisces and Pisces is often described as like being the ocean, um, rather than like, you know, Cancer, who's described as the family on the shore and Scorpio, which is described as like the depths of the ocean, right? Um, so 
Pisces being representative of the ocean and its expansiveness, uh, they were like, we're probably going to see a lot more natural disasters when it comes to water or restrictions around water, um, you know, people having trouble getting water um, and disasters related to water incidents. And Saturn moved into Pisces on March 7th of 2023. And then in June, we had that Ocean Gate um situation where there was that submarine that was going down to the Titanic and um, is said to have imploded and things of that nature. So we have seen a lot of things playing out that way, but that's how astrology started in terms of the traditional way of astrology. And then it later started to be that they started noticing patterns within um, certain times that people were born around the year and having similar, uh, you know, placements and um, personalities based on certain placements. So personal astrology and and using it in this terms of like natal astrology, right? Looking at someone's personality and uh, life situations in that way, it was less used at the beginning than it is now. Um, so originally they were using it as ways to kind of predict what would be happening to the emperor or the empire or, um, you know, people who were in political positions of like, Hey, we've noticed that there's a lot of assassinations when this transit happens, you know, when there's an eclipse or when there's this certain planet, uh, in the sky at this time and things of that nature. So, so it was used more for mundane reasons rather than natal reasons. But I think going back to the misconception is that a lot of people feel like, oh, well, when the moon is in this sign, it, it, you know, causes these things to happen. But really what astrology is, is it tends to be a mirror of what's happening, um, uh, many astrologers that you can talk to, which not all of astrologers have this um, perception of astrology and this like, belief of astrology, but a, a lot of astrologers will say like the planets in certain signs or the planets doing certain things won't cause something to happen, but they'll mirror what's happening. So, you know, obviously we know that the moon influences the tides. We're made up of a lot of water. So it's, not unheard of that, you know, full moons can cause people to act certain ways or exhibit certain behaviors. Um, but in astrology, it's not necessarily that if you have this placement, that means this definitely. It just is more approached in the sense that it tends to be this, right? Astrology tends to mirror this. And the fact of the matter is that it's just uncannily accurate sometimes. Um, like for example, I was talking to Alyssa the other day about perfection years and within traditional astrology, there is a concept called a perfection year. And what that is, is that everybody in their natal chart has 12 houses and the 12 houses represent different areas of your life. So the first house would represent like the physical self and the second house would represent the things 
directly outside of yourself. So your possessions, um, the income that you earn, things of that nature. The third house would be like the way that you communicate, the way that you interact with uh, siblings and um, the way that you process information. The fourth house is like the home and what you're surrounded by in your home, your childhood. The fifth house is like creativity, things of that nature. So as we go through our lives, each year is typically represented by a house. So our first year of living is represented by the first house. You know, we're getting used to our body. We're getting used to exploring what it's like being in a a physical body that is experiencing a physical existence. And then the second year is focused on, you know, materials and how we're interacting with the material goods around us. And the third year is when we start developing um, speech and our ways of communication and starting to understand language and things of that nature. So as we go through life, there's different houses that are represented by different things. So when we get to houses like the eighth house and the sixth house and the and the twelfth house, those can be very difficult houses where we experience a lot of restriction or a lot of um, experiences where it's it's really changing the way that we perceive the world around us. We perceive life. And so a lot of people who have an eighth year perfection year, which takes place at the age of 7, 19, 31, 43, 55, and 67 and onwards, those years tend to be quite pivotal in how we approach things. I know that 19 years old was a very difficult year for me. That was a year where I really had a lot of experiences that made me, you know, kind of question how I was moving forward in my life and really look at things that I was keeping inside unnecessarily. And even seven years old, also uh, a eighth year perfection year. Like that was also around a time where I started having a lot of spiritual experiences and the eighth house does represent the occult and things of that nature. So that was around a time when I started having a lot more spiritual experiences and things of that nature. So things like that can be really interesting. Um, but as far as transits go that I think can be impactful and, and helpful for people to keep in mind is you're going to want to get familiar with your own personal chart in astrology to really understand what kind of transits would be more significant for you than they would be for other people. So one of the things that I look at when I'm doing astrological readings like natal charts is I look at someone's rising sign and the way that you can find your rising sign is if you go to a site like astro-seek.com, which honestly is my favorite site to do astrology stuff from. It's a really comprehensive site for people just getting started with astrology or if you're interested in astrology at all. There's a lot of information on there. I'm not sponsored by them, but I just, I really like the site. Um, but you can go in there, you can go to, uh, the place where you would put in your horoscope information. So you can go to free horoscopes, birth and natal chart online calculator. You put in your information. You're going to want to try to have the information you put in as accurate as possible. So if you don't know the exact time that you were born, keep in mind that your rising sign will likely be different. So the rising sign changes every two to two and a half hours. So if you were born at 5 p.m., 
but then you put in 7 p.m. as a birth time, you're probably going to have a different rising sign than you would if you had accurate information. So it is fairly important to have the um, exact and or as close to an exact birth time as possible. If you don't, you can do chart rectifications, which is where you talk with an astrologer who can um, figure out a general amount of time that you were born based on different questions that they would ask you. I'm not personally trained in chart rectification yet, so I can't offer that kind of service, but there are people who do. But basically you're going to want to generate your chart and the ASC line is going to be what determines your rising sign. And so the where that line is makes your rising sign. And that, so let's say, for example, like my chart, I'm a Sagittarius rising and Sagittarius is traditionally ruled by Jupiter. So Jupiter is my planetary ruler. So transits that happen with Jupiter are going to impact me maybe a little bit more than they would someone who's like a Cancer rising or a Leo rising, right? So when Jupiter went retrograde, for example, um, I found it a little bit harder to like feel motivation to do things or feel a little bit harder in like getting things going, things of that nature, uh, which isn't necessarily bad, but because I know that Jupiter is my ruling planet, I can understand where it might be impacting me a little bit more than it might be someone else. But another thing is that when you understand your chart, you can also understand what areas of life are being highlighted throughout the year. So like I said, because I'm a Sagittarius rising, when it's Sagittarius season and the sun moves into the sign of Sagittarius, that is the sun moving into my first house. So Scorpio season tends to be a season where I hermit quite a lot because I tend to be really in my 12th house. I have a lot of illumination from the sun in my 12th house during Scorpio season because Scorpio is in my 12th house. So I have a lot of mental health stuff um, come to light that I can address and look at. I have a lot of information that I might be overlooking in my life come up for me to process, right? So not necessarily a bad thing, but a good thing for me to keep in mind because around Scorpio season, I can know and expect that. Then during uh, Sagittarius season, I have, it's a a lot easier for me to deal with, you know, how I want to be presenting to the world, how I want to be moving forward with things. Um, So when you understand how the houses in your chart are set up, you can understand what transits are, are affecting you in certain ways. You know, if you have your seventh house in Aries, you're going to know that the nodal axis change of the North node in Aries and the South Node in Libra is going to really, you know, impact your connections with other people and the contracts and the, um, the commitments you have to other people during that time. So it's, it's really helpful to understand your own chart, to understand the transits and why it's helpful to know what's going on in the sky, because a transit that is really impacting someone else might not impact you at all. If you have a Mercury retrograde natally in your chart, 
is someone might be like, oh my gosh, this mercury retrograde is really tough for me, right? It's causing me so much issues. And then you're like, I'm not getting as affected by this as you are. It might be because you have a, a natal mercury retrograde and or that their mercury might be in Virgo, right? And then they're, we're having a mercury retrograde in Virgo. So it's extra affecting them. So things like that, can help us to know why certain transits are affecting us on a certain level or a more severe level or a more impactful level than others, which is why it's, it's so helpful to just understand your chart. Um, and it doesn't mean that you have to understand it on a intimate, you know, level of understanding exactly how everything works or understanding astrology on a very broad level, but even just understanding what rising sign you are or sun sign you are, or even moon sign can be really helpful in understanding how transits are affecting you on a personal level. But as far as impactful transits go, I do think that Saturn returns are talked about as very impactful transits. I do believe that that is impactful. Um, another one that I see as pretty impactful is nodal uh, returns. So when the North and South node uh, meet up with your natal north and south node, in addition to having your north and south node or the transiting north and south node moving through your first and or seventh house, because that axis tends to be really highlighting things related to um, the self and things of that nature. Like we see things, uh, for example, with like uh, Marilyn Monroe is one that you can see a lot of her impactful experiences or impactful, um, you know, career moves were made during the times that the North and South node were in her first and seventh houses, which is really interesting. So things like that can be helpful when understanding what to look out for. Um, the Saturn returns tend to happen. The first one tends to happen around the ages of, I believe it's like 27 and 32 tends to be like the, the time period when it can happen. Usually a Saturn return will take two to two and a half years. Um, sometimes up to three, depending on how many retrogrades Saturn goes through during that time. But typically it's only about two to two and a half years long. But with that said, I will get going. I'm so sorry that um, we weren't able to get to the topic that we wanted to this month, uh, but we will be getting into that soon. We were really excited about it, but you know, scheduling stuff happens, unfortunately, but I'm so happy to be able to join you all this month and um, we will be back next month with new information and I can't wait to talk to you all then. All right. Goodbye, ghosties. Have a good rest of your October. Are you new to witchcraft or wanting to improve your practice? Then my Patreon is for you. My name is Alyssa. I am a practitioner with over 10 years of experience, and I want to help you to take your practice to the next level. Within my Patreon, you'll find information on the history of witchcraft, the science of magic, exercises for strengthening your clear abilities, spell crafting and how-tos, baneful magic, and so much more. Join today via patreon.com slash Mystic. Let me help you unlock your magic. My name is Ariel Willow. I'm a clairvoyant medium and occultist with over a decade of experience of helping others build deeper connections with spirit and themselves and improve or reconnect to their abilities. 
My services cater towards abilities coaching, deity practice, astrology, and more. Visit www.ariowillow.com to find out more. It's time to step into your power.